Hi, my name is Tara, and you're listening to You Should Write a Book, the podcast. If this really was a book, this would be in the chapter called Reflections, and this section would be called Let's Talk About Suicide. Our conversations about suicide have evolved over the years, from obituaries using oblique phrases like died unexpectedly to something a bit more clear like lost the battle. There has also been a major shift in how mental illness and addiction is viewed, from being a moral failing and a sin to a condition worthy of compassionate treatment. And we also understand that the images of Eeyore that we all grew up with had a much deeper meaning. Winnie the Pooh and his friends never left him alone for long, and that sometimes they just simply sat with him in his sadness. When an event like the death by suicide of a celebrity like Twitch hits the airwaves, a lot of conversations take place ranging from how could he do that to his family to how sad that he thought that was the only way out of his pain. I have been touched by suicide both personally and professionally, and I learned a lot from those experiences. But there was also a time that I almost forgot those lessons and a time where I was very grateful that I found help turns out that whinnies are everywhere. There are trigger warnings that include depression, suicidal ideation, and the aftermath of losing a loved one who died at their own hand. Proceed with caution. Here we go. I was in my early 20s the first time I remember being close to a person who had taken their own life. Without going into too many details, Let me just say that she was married, seemingly happy, was the mother to a beautiful toddler, worked in a retail job and had a lot of friends. From the outside looking in, her life was just like ours. Sure, there were hard times with bills to pay and a toddler to corral, but she seemed happy enough. A few weeks before her death, she had asked her husband if he had ever been so tired that he thought about not putting his foot on the brake as he drove along the edge of the mountain. Of course, he said no, and suggested that maybe she take some time off work and that they'd book a vacation soon. I spent time with him, the husband, after the busyness that comes with the funeral and the aftermath. Once friends and family had stopped dropping by with casseroles and flowers, He was left to parent alone in the stillness of the house where love had once lived. I was there when he got the note back from the police. We sat at the kitchen table with this precious little boy tucked safely into a bed down the hall, and he read it out loud to me, the note that she had left. She had written the phrase, I love you, I love you, I love you, in all caps, 12 times. Each time he read the phrase, he hit the paper. Of course, he was sad beyond measure, but what I witnessed was anger and confusion. How could she say that she loved him and take her life? How could she leave him alone while declaring that she'd done it for him? 
How could she see this as anything but torture? And the biggest question that was left for him was, why didn't she tell me how bad it was? Why didn't she let him help her? He blamed himself for not noticing her despair. He, like all the friends and people she saw every day, saw only the normal ebbs and flows of moods up one day and down the next. She didn't want him to see. She didn't want to burden him with the pain that was eating at her core. She saw the end of her life as a gift to him, that by taking her own life, she would no longer be a burden. She saw no other way out. She, in her mind, had no other option. Of course, none of these things are true. He would have done anything for her if he'd known. I wonder if Twitch felt the same. I suspect that he did. At the beginning of my professional life, I was called early one morning to go to a parishioner's home. I found her. She's dead. The police are here. Come. It was my first funeral and I was on my own. I called in reinforcements. This wasn't going to be just any funeral. The young woman was the third in her cohort of friends to have taken her own life. With her family's permission, I liaised with the suicide prevention team and made sure that they were present at the funeral, offering support and counseling to the hundreds of young people who attended. The young man, one of the friends who had taken his life a few weeks before, had his funeral at a different Christian denomination. The congregation there was told that while it was sad that he had died, that he had committed a sin against God and, therefore, was not in God's presence upon his death. I had to fix that message. The common term used for someone who has taken their own life is committed suicide. In religion, if a person sins against God, they have committed a sin. Many churches have changed their position on this and now understand that death by one's own hand is no longer seen as a moral failing, but is rather the final act of a person who is in trouble, mentally or physically. God would never turn such a person away from God's own presence. The word suicide is actually a legal term. The suffix side, C-I-D-E, indicates the killing of a person, and the prefix indicates what person has been murdered. For instance, matricide, the killing of one's mother, patricide, the killing of one's father, and infanticide, the killing of an infant. Suicide, therefore, is the killing of oneself. Up until around 50 years ago, the taking of one's own life was indeed a crime, and the person who died, died with a criminal record. As I stood before the packed church, filled with the faces of family and friends who were in a state of desperate grief, I needed them to know that the act was neither a sin against God or a crime against the state. 
I needed them to know that her soul was at rest in the presence of God who created her, but I also needed them to know that this was not what God wanted for her, that life, though hard sometimes, is a gift to be cherished. And I wanted them to know that if they ever found themselves in a situation where they could no longer find life or love or laughter, that there were people around them that could help them get back there. Family, friends, or even a professional would be there to help them if they needed it. At the time, 211 had just been launched in Calgary, and that number would connect them to a suicide prevention counselor. Currently, the Government of Canada will be launching a 988 number nationwide beginning in November of 2023 that will do the same. It has already been successfully launched in the United States. Help is available. If you're ever feeling like Eeyore, look for your Winnie. Life and love and laughter will come again. You just have to ask. I don't know if Twitch knew this or if in his condition he had convinced himself that he was beyond saving. I don't know if the young woman I buried knew this or if she too thought that she was beyond help. As someone with these experiences, knowing the devastation left in the wake of someone who succeeds in ending their own life, knowing the anger, the guilt, and the never-ending sadness that will accompany their loved ones for the rest of their lives. There was a time when I almost forgot. I had been struggling with not only my mental health, but my physical health for months. I'd been taken to the emergency room, having no memory of how I ended up there or the days that preceded my stay. They released me with a emergency psychiatric appointment set for four months later, some emergency. By the time of that emergency psychiatric appointment in March of 2022, I hadn't left my house in weeks. My dog and I hung out on the couch with the blackout curtains drawn. My limbs weighed more than I could lift and every movement took great effort and I couldn't muster any effort. I was unemployed and becoming more unemployable by the day, and my future prospects looked bleak. The psychiatrist, during our phone appointment, suggested that I join a CBT group, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Through this, I obtained a new psychiatrist whom I loved, and we began online meetings in May with three psychiatrists and six participants. By June, with COVID restrictions being lifted, they secured a space where we could meet in person or, if we chose, we could continue meeting online. I looked forward to the weekly sessions, but in my head I was convinced that I was beyond saving, so I resisted all of the help that was being offered. What began as a fleeting thought, it would be so easy just to slip under the water during my bath, turned into, 
I know what mountain road I could take and just not put my foot on the brake. Turned into a plan. I won't tell you what the plan was, but it was a plan where I would be sure to die. Even from the outside looking in, my life kind of sucked. Unemployed, biting humor where funny used to live, getting out of bed only because my dog needed to be fed and let outside, broke and gaining weight just by watching commercials on TV. It was very grim. But those weren't thoughts that led me down the dark path I was on. My thoughts were, well, my brother Wade and my sister Dale were both dead by this age, so it will be any time now anyway. If I do make it past the age of 53, I'll end up just like my mom, turning into a mere shadow of myself as I descend into dementia. I don't want my boys to have to look after me like that. I used to be a priest, but it seems I have nothing left to offer the world now. I think it was all bullshit. Thankfully, someone noticed. I was Eeyore, and I needed a Winnie. It happened to be my psychiatrist. She asked all of the right questions. Have you thought about suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? Yes. Do you have a date? Yes. Do you have a note? It was that question that snapped me out of my delusions. My delusions were telling me that everyone would be better off without me around, that I had become a burden and that their lives would be easier and that because I loved them so much, my death would provide them with relief. But that question snapped me back to the kitchen table all those years before. It snapped me back to the anger and guilt and sadness and regret that I'd witnessed as he hit the page yelling, I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over again 12 times. It snapped me back to the realization that no one would understand my actions to be loving or to be a relief. I checked myself into the hospital I spent four days on the crisis prevention unit under the compassionate and watchful eyes of the nurses there. On the fourth day, a spot opened up in the locked psychiatric unit, and I took it. I could have left. I was a voluntary commit, so there was no external force keeping me there. But as an inpatient, things can happen quickly Need a CT scan? Here's the porter to take you there. Concerned about possible seizure activity? Here, let's flash some lights in your eyes for 30 minutes and see what happens. Med changes? You betcha. Dose this one down, increase this one, and monitor the side effects. By the time I left 12 days later, my limbs no longer felt like lead. One of the meds I'd been taking had led to some pretty brutal side effects and they determined that I never should have been on it in the first place. But more than that, I had begun to remember that there was still life and love and laughter. I'd gone for coffee with a friend 
And to my delight, I found that my humor had come back without the bite. That wasn't the end of my journey back to being well, but I was on my way. I had some tools that I could use to stop the merry-go-round in my head, and I opened myself back up to spirit. Turns out, spirit had been there all along, deep inside of me. I just hadn't been able to see her light. The cartoons of Eeyore in the Winnie the Pooh series. I had family and friends just like the ones that Eeyore had. Even though my depression made me feel desperately alone, in reality, I wasn't. They kept calling. They kept showing up. They made sure I didn't sink too low. And for as faulty as our mental health system is, and it is really very faulty, I was able to be plugged into professional help. And for that, I will always be grateful. Looking back at the situation with my friend all of those years ago, I don't know what might have saved her, if anything. I do know that we know more now and that as a society, we are more educated about mental health issues and how to identify them and that there is more help available. If you're listening to this and you find yourself in a dark place, I get it. I've been there. But I also know that your dark place won't last forever and that life, love and laughter are there waiting for you to find them. If all you can manage is to reach out to someone you trust by texting and saying, I'm not okay, do it. If that feels too personal, private, invasive, dial 211 if it's available where you are. 988 if you're in the US or even call 911 and they can help you find help. If you're feeling like Eeyore, look for your Winnie the Pooh. And if you're listening to this and you are Winnie the Pooh, if you are a friend or family member of someone like Eeyore and you're concerned, don't stop showing up. Don't stop texting or calling and reaching out. You don't need to insist on having conversations or delving into the person's depression. You just need to be present. And if you need advice on how best to help, call the Suicide Prevention Counselor organization near you. Talking about suicide, having a conversation about your concerns that someone might be considering it, won't lead them to take their own life but it just might save them from carrying through with it. Naming it, asking point blank if they're thinking about it, if they have a plan, if they have a date, might just lead them to snap out of the worst of it and be willing to get the help they need to get off the merry-go-round that led them there. I know that this has been a very difficult conversation. Thanks for sticking it out. There is hope. There is life and love and laughter. And for every Eeyore, there are lots of Winnie the Poohs. Thanks for listening. Bye.